Yes, the TV movie. What later became a staple of the weekly TV schedule. The concept of making a TV movie initially had a lukewarm reaction from television networks themselves, as it was thought it would disrupt the status quo that had developed between the networks, sponsors, and affiliate stations. But in 1961, ABC began airing theatrical films on the weekend as the NBC Saturday Night at the Movies and other networks soon followed suit. Soon there were a number of the insert day of week here, night at the movies, filling time slots which actually started to lead to a shortage of movie studio films to air. Faced with this shortage of content, TV networks warmed to the idea of TV movies and coined the term made-for-TV movie as an invitation for viewers to stay home on the weekend and watch what was promoted as the equivalent of a first-run theatrical film. NBC pioneered the made-for-TV movie, and what are generally acknowledged to be the first two made-for-TV movies aired on NBC in 1964. But it was ABC that upped the game in 1969, taking a concept previously floated to all the networks and rejected of creating a weekly, original, made-for-TV movie with a 90-minute, instead of a 120-minute time slot that allowed for a smaller budget. ABC called this new TV movie format the movie of the week, and the rest is history. An original motion picture produced especially for the movie of the week. Tonight on the movie of the week. ABC presents the movie of the week. ABC initially cranked out 25 of these a season airing on Tuesday nights at 7.30 p.m. Central Time, using an established popular series as a lead-in. This allowed the final time slot of 9 p.m. Central to have a one-hour program before the local news. This also made viewers less likely to change channels at 8 p.m. In 1971, ABC added a second movie of the week on Saturday night and adjusted the titles of the shows to The Movie of the Week, and the movie of the weekend. Soon there were movies of the week all over the place. At one point, ABC producing 69 of these during the 1973 to 74 season. Tuesday, movie of the week. Presenting an original Wednesday, movie of the week. An original motion but during the 1973 fall season, ABC added another movie on Saturday nights to their schedule, this time titled The ABC Suspense Movie, and usually consisting of thriller, 
mystery, as well as horror-type films. Many of these being essentially TV versions of the type of classic, gothic horror films Hollywood had made popular since the 1930s. And a genre of television that networks found popular with Dark Shadows, Night Gallery, Ghost Story, and others. And thus, we have our podcast topic for this special episode of Forgotten TV. The podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. So sit back, relax, but don't get too relaxed, because we're going to look at creepy TV monster movies of the 70s. And there's no better place to start than 1972's The Night Stalker. introduce myself. My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You will get it, another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. Airing on ABC on January 11, 1972, as the Tuesday night movie of the week, based on an unpublished novel called The Kolchak Papers, with a teleplay by Richard Matheson, writer of House of Usher, The Legend of Hell House, 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone, among many, many other credits. Produced by veteran TV horror master Dan Curtis that brought TV audiences Dark Shadows. The Night Stalker starred Darren McGavin as Carl Kolchak, world-weary newspaper reporter for the Daily Chronicle. The film opens as he's narrating his story into a tape recorder, a story about how he's been on the trail of a murderer in seedy, early 1970s Las Vegas. Chapter 1 this is the story behind one of the greatest manhunts in history. Maybe you read about it, or rather what they let you read about it, probably is some minor item buried somewhere on a back page. However, what happened in that city between May 16th and May 28th of this year was so incredible that to this day the facts have been suppressed in a massive effort to save certain political careers from disaster and law enforcement officials from embarrassment. This will be the last time I will ever discuss these events with anyone. So when you have finished this bizarre account, judge for yourself its believability. And then try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, it couldn't happen here. All the murder victims were showgirls, ladies of the evening, cocktail waitresses, and all had their bodies drained of blood. Then someone robbed the local hospital of all their stored blood. The local authorities withhold this information from the public, leading Kolchak to one 
particular conclusion. There is a killer who thinks himself to be a vampire. Did I say it was a vampire? Well, what does your suggested headline say? The story makes it clear. Vampire killer in Las Vegas, question mark. Do I misread? The story makes it clear. Do I misread or did you use the word vampire? Some screwball who imagines he's a vampire is loose in Las Vegas and people ought to be told. If there's a screwball running around loose in Las Vegas, his last name begins with a K. You already heard about the little scene you have with the boys downtown. No vampire stories. Clear? How about a special featurette with a border of roses? An interview with the two girl victims in heaven uh, with a celestial choir in the background. Ow! Again, the blood stores of a local hospital are raided, but this time there are several witnesses as the perpetrator throws several people out of his way, including hurling a man out a second-story window, as well as leaping over police cars to get away. Now the police have come up with a suspect, Janos Skorzeny, a man in his early 70s that was a suspect in a number of homicides going back 30 years. But Kolchak still has some questions. I was at the hospital yesterday, and a lot of things were happening that you just simply cannot explain away. Sheriff, your own men shot at him, some at point-blank range. How come it didn't even slow him down? How come a man over 70 years old can outrun a police car? How come the same man, when slugged in the head, doesn't even bleed? Now, I saw those gashes in his head, and whatever it was was trickling down from those wounds, it was clear. It oh, was yeah, this not guy's blood. got a motor mouth. Can't we shut him up? No, let him hang himself. Then we'll finally be rid of him. So far, he has killed four, probably five women. Now, the coroner said that those bite marks on the throat were made by human teeth. He practically confirmed the fact that he actually drank their blood. Now, no, 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 wait, now, whatever the scores he may be, he seemed to be functioning as if he were a vampire. Now, you can go on operating as if you were an ordinary man. Uh, that's up to you. But I know that the only way you're going to get him is if you proceed under the assumption that he's a real-life vampire. Oh, now, now, wait, now, wait, now wait, the research that I've been able to wait find... A wait a minute, Kolchak, have you lost your mind? Can you imagine the total blind panic this town would be in if the public were told we were actually looking for a vampire? Not to mention the irreparable damage it would do to the image of law enforcement in Vegas. Ah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's it! Kolchak's investigating leads him to the house where Skorzeny lives, in an extended scene with no dialogue, he finds it run down, littered with trash, with bottles of stolen blood in the refrigerator. Most interesting of all is an empty coffin. That is, until the owner of the house returns home and Kolchak finds himself face to teeth with a vampire. In a truly creepy scene, Kolchak manages to gain the upper hand and drives a stake into Skorzeny's heart, just as the police show up to witness the true nature of their serial killer. Thinking he has the story of the century and the ticket back to a big-time newspaper, Kolchak writes it up, and proposes to girlfriend Gail. But, not wanting the true, horrifying story to come out, the police and the DA 
end up both squashing Kolchak's story as well as kicking him and his girlfriend out of town, threatening him with arrest and prosecution for Skorzeny's murder if he were to ever return to Las Vegas. So all the loose ends have been gathered together and tied into a pretty knot right around the neck of guess who. After I left town, I began putting notices in the personal columns of newspapers from San Francisco to St. Louis. Until I ran out of money, that is. So far, I've received no answers, but I, I'll keep trying, even though I don't think I'll ever find Gail Foster again. Maybe it's just as well. So that's it. The book's finished. And now you'll have to judge for yourself. I must warn you, however, if you try to verify this account, you will find it quite impossible. Item, in Washington, D.C., there was no longer a file listing the suspect under his true name or any of his alleged aliases. Item, in Las Vegas, all of those who were involved have either left town, aren't talking, or are dead. I haven't had a decent night's sleep since all this happened. And now you might find it difficult, too. Because there is still one fact that cannot be buried. After the death of Janos Skorzeny, he and all of his victims were immediately cremated. Why? Remember the legend? All those who die from the bite of the vampire will return as a vampire, unless destroyed first. So think about it, and try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, in the quiet of your home, in the safety of your bed, try to tell yourself, it couldn't happen here. <laughs> Behind the Scenes The Night Stalker earned the highest ratings of any TV movie up to that time, reportedly a 33.2 rating with a 54 share. It was so well received that some of the producers later said they wished they had taken the movie and gone with a theatrical release instead. The Night Stalker featured wonderful supporting actors, Claude Akins, Larry Linville, Simon Oakland, and Barry Atwater. A truly creepy film that lent itself well to be aired as the late movie on both ABC and later CBS repeatedly. I well remember watching it on the late movie in the mid-80s. ABC soon ordered another Kolchak TV movie called The Night Strangler that aired a year later. The movie was very similar in tone and plot to the original and did almost as well in the ratings. A third movie was planned but was set aside when the network ordered a series instead and we got 20 episodes of Kolchak, The Night Stalker. never tell what's in the dark shadows or what lurks behind each door. But with groovy horror heads for friends, you won't be scared anymore. There's Barnabas and Quentin and the witch, like in Dark Shadows on TV. They make great decorations for your room. They're so soft and cuddly. 
Barnabas, Quentin, and the Witch. Get your dark shadow horror heads today. They're fun to play with, too. They're all made by sensible toys who make lots of stuffed things for you. 1972. Gargoyles. I have no idea how this movie slipped through the parental filters, but I have a distinct memory of watching this. This was likely the first scary movie I ever saw. Airing on CBS November 21, 1972, after Hawaii Five-0. Gargoyles starred Cornell Wilde, Jennifer Salt, the late Bernie Casey, as well as Scott Glenn and Grayson Hall. A creepy voiceover by none other than the Outer Limits control voice introduces the viewers to The Gargoyles, documentary style. And so it came to pass that while man ruled on Earth, the gargoyles waited, lurking, hidden from the light. Reborn every 600 years in man's reckoning of time, the gargoyles joined battle against man to gain dominion over the Earth. In each coming, the gargoyles were nearly destroyed by men who flourished in greater numbers. Now it has been so many hundreds of years that it seems the ancient statues and paintings of gargoyles are just products of man's imagination. In this year, with man's thoughts turned toward the many ills he has brought upon himself, man has forgotten his most ancient adversary, the gargoyles. The movie then cuts to Dr. Mercer Bowley, a skeptical author on the supernatural, and his young adult daughter, Diana, driving through the southwestern desert. Bowley has been summoned to Uncle Willie's Desert Museum, with the promise of revealing something worthy of inclusion in his next book. Uncle Willie takes him to the shed out back and shows him a strange skeleton he found in the hills, but Bowley laughs it off as an assembled collection of animal bones. Diana records this interview on audio tape. Then the shack comes under attack by something. What's that? I don't care to know, Dr. Bowley and Diana barely escaped the shack, now burning down, but Uncle Willie wasn't so lucky. Driving away, they replay the interview audio tape when the car is attacked from above by the same something and is run off the road. Diana, can you see anything? They're on the roof. Hold tight.
they make it to a service station with nearby motel and have to bother the cranky motel owner, who is never without a drink in her hand. The next day, they relate the story to the local police, who are quick to blame a group of dirt bikers in the area and arrest the lot of them. Late that night, Bowley is in the motel room trying to sleep when clawed hands come up over the end of the bed. Gargoyles are in the room after the skull Bowley kept from Uncle Willie's skeleton. Running away, one of the gargoyles is hit by a truck and dies in front of Bowley. Soon more gargoyles return for the body of their friend, and Bowley and Diana try to make a run for it. The gargoyles overturn the car and take Diana back to their cave in the desert. The next day, the police, the bikers, even motel lady are all out combing the desert for where the gargoyles are hiding out with Diana. Diana explores the cave and has an odd conversation with the main gargoyle. Diana! Let me go. No. Why? You can speak. Tell me why. These are my father's books. He teaches from them. Then you must teach me, Diana. What's all this for? There is a great deal we must learn. We have only been alive for a few weeks. We must not let you kill us out. Not this time. What about the others? There are perhaps maybe a dozen of us. We mean no harm. You have nothing to fear. Your people have nothing to fear. But they have never understood. Why do I have to stay here if you mean us no harm? Shh! The gargoyles find out they are being hunted by the search party. Speak. In the desert, close by. Men, horses, and dogs. The eggs. They're hatching. A winged one. Another breeder. There'll be many, many more by tomorrow. We must stop them in the desert. Now! Now! Bowler is taken to the cave and comes face to horns with the gargoyle, who seems overly happy to lay down some exposition. Do you think that you tricked me into bringing you here? You only tricked yourself. 
you and your daughter will never see another human again. Five hundred years we waited. And now our eggs have begun to hatch again. But we must have time. Time enough to grow strong before you and your kind destroy us. And we shall not die. It will be you and your kind that dies. And what if mankind isn't ready to be wiped off the face of the earth? Hmm? Oh, you'll be around to see it, Moly. <laughs> the end of your age. The beginning of mine. <laughs> what? Bowler escapes the cave and brings along one of the bikers, Scott Glenn, with a plan to burn the gargoyles out of the cave along with their eggs. The cave now on fire, Bowler and Diana have a final showdown with the main gargoyle. Let her go! The girl comes with me! You hear that? They'll be here in a moment. You brought them here to kill us. We kill you before you can kill us. Go. Alone you have a chance. The rest of you are finished. Not while there are two winged breeders left. It's only her wing. You can carry her. How clever you are. Your choice has allowed you and your daughter to survive. It also allows me and my kind to survive. Perhaps at the price of your supremacy on Earth one day. The gargoyle and his last winged female fly into the night sky, and the movie just ends. Behind the Scenes Gargoyles was repeated on TV late movies and in syndication for years. I'm sure when I saw this as a kid, it was a later repeat airing. But that motel room scene with the gargoyle claws creeping over the edge of the bed stuck with me for years. The Emmy award-winning creature makeup was done by Stan Winston, and this is the first thing he is credited to have worked on during his long career, which included The Terminator, Aliens, The Monster Squad, among so many others. Gargoyles eventually faded from TV, and in 1998 it was finally released on VHS and a couple of times on DVD, but it has been out of print for a few years. It was last seen on Svinguli this year, and if you keep checking the listings, gargoyles will undoubtedly pop up again. After these creepy messages, we'll be right back. Come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. Monster vitamins. They're fun. They're screaming me. Babbly <laughs> Monster Mobile. Monsters taste terrific too, Mother. Your children should get vitamins by eating right, but when they don't, Mother, Monsters and Monsters plus iron sure help. My children love them. 
Right, kids? Don't be scared. I'm the super sweet monster with the super sweet new cereal, Count Chocula. Bethel, here's the super sweet new cereal, Frankenberry. But I've got chocolate sweeties for monstrous chocolate flavor. Well, I've got berry flavored sweeties for monstrous strawberry flavor. Count Chocula. Frankenberry. Hi. Ah. <laughs> Frankenberry. Count Chocula. Hi, this is Ernie Hudson, and you're listening to Forgotten TV. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Airing as the ABC Wednesday Night Movie of the Week, October 10th, 1973. Starring Kim Darby and Jim Hutton. Do you think she'll come? Of course she will. You know she will. But when? When? Very soon. It's just a matter of time. Of waiting for a while. All we have to do is bide our time. Bide our time. But it's been so long. So many years. When will she come and set us free? Set us free. Set us free. Patience. All the time in the world. All the time in the world. In the world. In the world. To set us free in the world. Sally Farnham and her husband Alex inherit an old mansion from Sally's recently deceased grandmother. Shortly after moving in, she discovers a bricked-up fireplace in the basement den and asks the estate's handyman, Mr. Harris, about it. He tells her that Sally's grandmother had him seal it up after her grandfather died and it is better to leave it the way it is. After he leaves for the day and Sally is alone in the room, she uses some of Mr. Harris's tools to try to remove the bricks herself. She is unable to budge the bricks, but is able to pry open a small side door that Mr. Harris said was used for removing ashes from the fireplace. Inside is not a fireplace at all, but a dark, large, deep sub-basement. As Sally leaves the den, several whispering voices are heard coming from behind the fireplace, calling her name and proclaiming that she set us free. Sally soon begins to feel unsettled in the house. One night while sleeping, she is woken by voices whispering her name, and an ashtray mysteriously falls off her bedside cabinet. However, Alex dismisses her concerns and believes she is suffering from nervous tension. The next evening, when she is alone in the house, something grabs her dress as she is walking down the stairs, and she hears voices she manages to free herself and sees something scuttling away behind a curtain, which she believes was a small animal. Soon afterward, she hears the same whispering coming up from behind the fireplace in the basement den. 
Alex returns home, he remains unconvinced of her story, but makes sure the fireplace is bolted securely shut to reassure her. The following night, during a dinner party, Sally sees a small, hideous, goblin-like creature near her leg under the dinner table. She screams. But nobody believes what she saw as the creature quickly vanishes. Alex grows impatient with her and thinks she is becoming delusional. Later, while Sally is in the shower, three of these goblin creatures make their way into the bathroom and turn out the lights so that they can attack her with a straight razor. As Sally turns the light back on, the creatures shriek and retreat from the brightness into the bathroom cupboards where they disappear. Sally then tells Alex that they should sell the house. The following day, Alex goes away on business, and Sally arranges to go and stay with her friend Joan. However, before she goes, the creatures attempt to trip Sally down a flight of stairs, but they accidentally cause the death of her interior decorator instead. Sally tries to comfort the creatures and ask them what they want, to which they reply they want her, as whoever frees them must become one of them. That evening, Sally's doctor prescribes sedatives while her friend Joan stays with her. Joan begins to believe Sally's story about creatures in the house. However, returning early from his trip, Alex remains unconvinced. Alex then leaves to speak with their handyman regarding the history of the house and the truth behind the bricked-up fireplace. While Sally tries to remain awake after the creatures put sedatives into her coffee, the electricity is cut by the creatures, and Joan is locked outside by them while checking on the circuit breaker. Sally manages to walk downstairs, but the creatures trip her over in the dark. As she is semi-conscious, they then drag her into the basement den and into the unsealed fireplace before Alex and Joan can reach her. Ultimately, Sally, now with the creatures and speaking with them, patiently waits for the next victim to move into the house. Of course they will come. We know they will. I want 
to bite your finger. It's, it's a Dracula game. Just set the clock. Just try your luck. If Dracula is cape opens, you have to put your finger in his mouth and press the lever. If he leaves a mark on your finger, you have to start over again. He didn't bite me. If you can sneak all the way around Dracula's house, you'll win the game. You're not supposed to bite people. It's a Dracula game. I bought to bite your finger from Hasbro. Good evening, and welcome to Night Gallery. A potpourri of paintings slightly tilted and left of center. Don't be frightened. A collection of oils and still lifes that share one thing in common. You won't find them in the average salon or exhibition hall or art museum. Get out of here! We deal in paint, pigment, light and shadow, realism, surrealism, impressionism, and ghost stories. It enters your system like a chew, and then it grows like a cancer. These are not your ordinary canvases. You don't find Monet in a mausoleum or a Van Gogh in a graveyard. Is it his stare that gives me the chills? Or is it really cold in here? Not quite real, the almost real, and the frankly and flagrantly unreal. It's just some kind of trick. That's what we deal with here, the bizarre. The name of this place is the Night Gallery. presents Tuesday Movie of the Week. 1975 Trilogy of Terror One of the key creepy TV movies well remembered today was 1975's Trilogy of Terror. Sandwiched between Happy Days and Marcus Welby on a Tuesday night, another movie of the week, Trilogy of Terror featured three anthology-style stories, presented in the 90-minute runtime, all-starring actress Karen Black, in sort of an acting tour de force, all directed by Dan Curtis, and all written by suspense writer Richard Matheson. And all were named after the woman involved in the plot. A plain college professor who seduces a student, Julie. A pair of sisters who squabble over their father's inheritance, Millicent and Therese. But who are we kidding? The segment everybody thinks about when Trilogy of Terror is mentioned is the third segment, Amelia. Amelia lives alone in a high-rise apartment building. She returns home after shopping with a package. Inside is a Zuni fetish doll, crafted in the form of a misshapen aboriginal warrior equipped with razor-sharp teeth and a spear. A scroll comes with the doll, claiming the doll is that of a Zuni hunter, named He Who Kills, and that the gold chain adorning the doll keeps the doll from coming to life. As Amelia makes a call to her mother, we learn that she suffers from her mother's overbearing behavior. Amelia struggles to justify her independence and attempts to cancel their plans for the evening because she has a date. The moment Amelia leaves the room, the Zuni doll's golden chain falls off without her knowing. Later, Amelia is preparing dinner using a carving knife. She enters the darkened living room and realizes the doll is not on the coffee table. Amelia hears a noise in the kitchen and... When she investigates, the knife is missing. 
Returning to the living room, she is suddenly attacked by the doll, which stabs at her ankles viciously. She attempts to flee, but the doll chases her around the apartment. In the bathroom, Amelia envelops the doll in a towel and attempts futilely to drown it in the bathtub. She later traps it in a suitcase, but the doll begins cutting a circular hole through the top of the suitcase with the butcher knife. After several more vicious attacks, Amelia manages to hurl it into the oven and listens to it howl and scream as it catches fire. Soon the screams die down and eventually stop. She opens the oven to ensure that the doll is dead, and a cloud of black smoke billows out. Inhaling the smoke, she is suddenly overcome. Later, we see Amelia place another call to her mother. In a calm, controlled voice, she apologizes for her behavior during the previous call and invites her mother to visit her home for dinner. She then rips the bolt from her front door and crouches down low in an animalistic manner, hiding in the corner with the carving knife. She stabs at the floor with the weapon, grinning fairly and revealing the horrific teeth of the Zuni doll who now inhabits her body. Behind the Scenes Karen Black contributed much to the third segment, Amelia. She rewrote her first conversation with her mother on the telephone, she wanted to emphasize that the mother was controlling and manipulative. The original words made the mother out to be too nice. Making the mother controlling of Amelia would make the audience more on her side when we realize what is going to happen to the mother when she comes to visit. Also, when the doll is trying to escape from the suitcase, the effects men could not figure out how to show that Amelia is cut. Karen Black then thought to have them place the blood on her finger, which she would hide from the camera, until it was time to reveal it. When the film was first shown on Brazilian television in 1981, censors demanded that the third segment, Amelia, was completely cut out. Because of this, the TV station was forced to change the Portuguese title to Two Horror Stories. The idea of grinning and showing fang-like teeth similar to the Zuni doll the final and arguably most chilling image in the film actually came from Karen Black herself. The Amelia segment of Trilogy of Terror has stayed in pop culture ever since, and the Zuni doll has endlessly been referenced. On Mystery Science Theater 3000, Sliders, The Simpsons, and even by Karen Black herself in the 2013 horror spoof, Ooga Booga. I don't remember you. <laughs> 
next time on Forgotten TV. Hunters found them in the wilds of northern Minnesota. A boy raised from infancy by wolves. They captured him and brought him to the university where I was conducting research on human behavior. I named him Lucan. It's the 1977 TV movie and series, Lucan. That's next time on Forgotten TV. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making this episode possible. Cathode Ray 60, Videoholic Ultimate, Cinemated Man, Obsgia, Matt Payne, Eternal Melancholy 1, Robert C. 2009, Gallery Knight, The Rap Sheet, Mr. Psycho 313, Guy Conrad, Nito Coolville, The Museum of Classic Chicago Television, Sean MC, and Fishman. Forgotten TV is a member of Frequent Wire Podcast Network. Listen to other great shows by David Lawler and David Anderson, such as To David's Walk Into a Bar and Extreme Cinema. Forgotten TV is now on TuneIn Radio and can now be heard on the Amazon Echo by saying the command, Alexa, ask any pod to play Forgotten TV. Don't forget to follow Forgotten TV on Facebook and Twitter. All social media links are found at Forgotten.tv. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.